0: Well, we are going to get into the recession. That's inevitable. It's just a question of the length of runway between now and the next recession.
1: That's Liz Ann Saunders, senior vice president and chief investment strategist for Charles Schwab and Company. Today on Your Money Your Wealth, Liz Ann joins Alan Clopine, CPA, and Pure Financial Advisors' director of research Brian Perry, CFP, CFA, to discuss the causes of recent market volatility, the Fed funds rate, rolling bear markets, and what investors should do in 2019 to prepare for that inevitable recession. Plus, Joe and Big Al answer your money questions. If you're saving 55% of your income, should you keep saving or have more fun? Should you save for your kid's college or your own retirement? And isn't deciding when to take Social Security a lifestyle choice? And finally, how did the gurus fare with their 2018 market predictions? Let's get things started with a quick look back at 2018. Here are Joe Anderson CFP and Big Al Clopine CPA.
2: Markets were down, bonds were flat, and um, 2019 hopefully will be better.
3: Let's recap.
2: Uh, U.S. markets were down 5.5% right? as a whole. International markets were down about 15%.
3: Yeah, and, and collectively it was around 9.5% between international and domestic.
2: Uh, emerging markets were down about the same, 14.5%. In global real estate, so real estate around the world was down about 6%. Uh, the U.S. bond market was flat in global bonds minus the U.S. So international bonds were up actually 3%. So the case of global diversification still holds true, but we had some positive correlation here. Right. You, you know what I mean? So U.S. stocks went down, international stocks went down, international stocks went down a lot more, more. than U.S. stocks. So in a sense, they weren't quite correlated. Right. Uh, but the bonds, however, um, you got 3% on international bonds. Right. So even though you got your kind of teeth kicked in on international stocks, if you own international bonds, you got a little bit of uh, positive uh, premium there. Yeah,
3: well, and here's a little more numbers on that. So the Vanguard Long-Term Treasury Index ETF uh, went down 5.8% for the year. That's the long term. The midterm uh, went down 2.1%, and the short term went up 0.2%.
2: Yeah, that's what I got. Point oh one. Yep. Well, so what does that say? I mean, we talked about that. Like with interest rates kind of moving around, if you have long-term bonds, you're going to see some variance in the overall bond prices as interest rates move a little bit, right? And so the longer the term of the bond, as interest rates go up or down, you're going to see a little bit more movement. Uh, The shorter the term, you're not going to see nearly as much movement because there's so much less risk because those bonds kind of flip and mature on on a very regular short basis. Sure. Yeah. There was some complacency, I think. Where, hey, the market's doing pretty good for the last several years. Right. Overconfidence kind of probably set in. Right. And it's weird. The markets, the US markets, Alan, were down 5%. But I would say over the last several months, we've seen more like panic and fear than I've seen. Since like almost 2008, and that's just stupid for me to say.
3: Well, yeah, but a lot of the people that are in the market remember 2008, and a lot of them remember 2001 as well.
2: 2008, Alan, was nothing, nothing like 2008. 2000- <laughs> Eighteen.
3: I know, but when markets are going down, no one understands that. Five
2: percent versus fifty.
3: <laughs> right. But they're worried that we're gonna get have another forty five percent. That's the concern. And then what do you think? How many how many people listening to this program got out of the market? If they listened to our advice, they probably didn't. But I, I would say a lot of a lot of
2: folks do tend to, to jump ship when things like this happen. Christmas Eve imploded. Then all of a sudden the markets are up like the, the highest point percentage? Right. Just a few days later? Correct. It's like, what the hell do you do? And especially over the holidays. Right. Don't be trading your account, folks. (laughs) Um, Global diversification, you just kind of look at it, and they're like, oh, it doesn't really work because all the stocks are down. Uh, but some were down a little bit less than others. The, the biggest one that got hit the most this, um, last year was emerging markets, small companies. Uh, by far, those are the most riskiest asset classes, right. yeah. um, especially on the value side. So low price small companies in emerging markets, right. you're going to see some huge variances of return there.
3: Yeah. And the interesting thing, Joe, about that asset class is if you look long-term, it tends to be near the top, because it is risky. But on a year-in, year-out basis, it's all over the place.
2: Small value in the U.S. Um, also did not do very well. It was down about 13%. Uh, large cap was down 5 So if you had a small value portfolio, you saw a little bit more of a downturn sure. uh, than maybe, let's say, the S&P 500. Right. Large value was down about 8%. Small cap itself was down about 11 Large growth, that was the only thing in in positive territory. It was like up 1%. Right, right. Thank God we got someone a lot smarter talking about this. We got Liz Ann Saunders. She's the chief investment strategist for Charles Schwab. Liz Ann, thanks for joining us.
0: Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
2: Obviously, we've had
3: a quarter that wasn't the best, the fourth quarter of last year, to put it mildly. There's a lot of volatility. Do you see that continuing going forward?
0: I do. In fact, I think the volatility that we saw in 2018, whether you measure it by the volatility index, the VIX, or other metrics, well up from 2017, but actually not to anything resembling an extreme historically. So I think the message associated with that is that the lack of volatility that we saw in 2017 was the exception, not the rule, and what we saw last year was closer to the rule And I think that's likely to persist, and maybe not for the full year 2019, but easily in the first half.
3: I think a a lot of people forget the stock market is generally volatile, and we've had such a period of calm. Now we kind of think it's abnormal, but this is actually more normal.
0: Correct. Absolutely. And, and especially given that we're later in the economic cycle, that tends to bring in heightened levels of volatility for myriad reasons. And I think that's very much in keeping with what we have been seeing and likely will continue to see this year.
4: And staying along that line of what's causing the volatility, um, what is causing it? I, you referenced several things in your 2019 outlook, including uh, one thing that seems important to me is the tightening financial conditions. Right. Is that what people are worried about? Is it tariffs? Is it just that the economic recovery is long in the tooth? What's actually causing this? Reason?
0: I, I think it's all of the above. You mentioned financial conditions, which are often linked directly to monetary policy, but there are more factors than just the trend in interest rates that impact overall financial conditions. Um, Currency movements, specifically the dollar, uh, causes financial conditions to either tighten or loosen. Even equity market volatility can have an impact on financial conditions. And I think why it's been different this year is that even though the Fed has been raising interest rates for more than three years now, For the first two years of the rate hiking cycle, so basically 2016 and 2017, monetary policy was getting tighter, i.e. the Fed was raising interest rates, but overall financial conditions were getting progressively looser. So the Fed was actually tightening into looser financial conditions. And that was one of the reasons why they felt they could sort of be steady as she goes, because they weren't really having an impact on financial conditions. Fast forward to the beginning of 2018. And with the strength in the dollar, with the increased volatility in the equity market, at least two corrections that we saw during the year you saw a big pickup in financial conditions and at the same time the fed has also been tricking its balance sheet so you sort of have this triple whammy now where the fed is not only raising interest rates or has been raising interest rates they've also been tricking their balance sheet and at the same time overall financial conditions have been tightening so that in and of itself is a recipe for volatility and then you add other late cycle tendencies and the ongoing trade war and the uncertainty associated with that And you easily have the conditions for heightened volatility and a weaker stock market, which we certainly got last year.
3: So certainly we've had such a long period of recovery. And of course, people are very worried about recessions. And can you comment on what's your outlook for 2019 and beyond?
0: Well, we are going to get another the recession. That's inevitable. It's just a question of the length of runway between now and the next recession. And I think some of the things we've already discussed, the path of interest rates related to that, the shape of the yield curve, resolution or lack thereof on trade, I think will all hold the key to what the length of runway is between now and the next recession. I do think that If pretty much everything that I mentioned moves away from an optimistic case, I think a recession is possible starting in 2019, probably not imminently, but maybe later in the year, and especially if we get an inversion in the traditional yield curve. But there are circumstances under which we could push the next recession further out, 2020, maybe even 2021, if we see the Fed kind of back off interest rate increases, but for reasons that would be beneficial as well to the stock market kind of reverting back into a goldilocks type of environment where economic growth stays reasonably strong but doesn't bring inflation with it maybe you start to see a little bit less of a tight labor market without the labor market imploding at the same time you get some sort of deal on trade All of those things are a lot to ask for. And I would add to that, maybe not eliminate, but lessen some of the political and geopolitical volatility, then I think you have a recipe for pushing the recession further out, especially if somehow we get some sort of productivity boost along the way. That may be pie-in-the-sky hopes, and again, I, we are getting another recession. It's just a question of whether it's one that starts in 2019 or can be pushed further down. And we're not necessarily going to get an answer to those all at the same time. I think it's going to be over the course of the next several months. I think we'll have a better sense of, uh, of how long that runway is.
4: And so with worries about, uh, you mentioned the inverted yield curve and the tighter financial conditions, and obviously at some point a recession, whether that's 2019 or beyond, what does that mean for the Fed as far as future rate increases and I guess as a corollary to that, how concerned are you about the Fed coming under political pressure from Trump or from anybody else? Do you think that longer term that could have some negative impacts?
0: Well, I think, I think what the Fed did at the December meeting in raising rates, obviously into a volatile equity market, had maybe two meanings to it. One, I think, whether explicitly or subliminally, the Fed wanting to push back against political pressure and make sure the market understood that it was going to make decisions with an independent mindset. Now, I don't think that alone was the reason why they raised interest rates. I think the more important one, which is outside the subject of political pressure, is that, in fact, I I attended Fed Chair Jerome Powell's lunch in December at the Economic Club of New York. And although much of the press focused on his comment during that lunch that the Fed funds rate was just below the neutral rate, which calmed a lot of investors, relative to what he had said a couple months before, which was that the Fed funds rate was still well below the neutral rate. So there was a shift in thinking that maybe the Fed was getting close to being finished with what he said in December. But what I thought was the more important thing that Powell mentioned, and it was just looking at his body language, looking at the way he sort of made eye contact with the room, he said it's very important that we distinguish between financial market volatility and financial system stability, When making monetary policy decisions, which in other words is market volatility alone is not going to drive our decision making. We are not simply going to react to volatility in the stock market. We are going to react to the conditions associated with our mandates dual mandate of full employment and uh, price stability in conjunction with financial system stability. So I think he wanted to maybe push off this notion that yet again we had this sort of put we went from the bernanke put to the Yellen put to now the Powell put that any kind of market riot period was going to be enough to cause the fed to step in and in whatever form move that monetary policy lever and i think he was very clear that they were not going to do that and i think that was the primary reason why they decided to move in december but then of course powell getting a little bit more dovish and reinforcing the data dependency so looking ahead there is no predetermined path. It's not like the Fed knows what it's going to do and they're just waiting to drip out the information to us, you know, lowly market watchers. I think given how strong the jobs report was, and in particular the wage component, you see another report or two like that, I think this notion that the Fed is done will not be supported by the data. If what we saw was a one-off and we see a weakening in job growth and lessening pressure in wages, then it is possible the Fed is sort of done at least for now in this cycle. So I think the next couple of months are key to figuring that. I don't think the Fed does anything in January, but March I think is still on the table.
1: We're speaking with Liz Ann Saunders, Chief Investment Strategist for Charles Schwab and Company. You'll find a transcript of this interview as well as a link to Liz Ann's 2019 market outlook 10 years gone in the show notes for today's podcast episode at the brand new yourmoneyyourwealth.com. In her 2019 market outlook, Liz Ann goes into more depth on tightening financial conditions, the yield curve, rolling bear markets, and other recession indicators. Now, more with Liz Ann Saunders
3: you talked about rolling bear markets that we've seen in things like emerging market stocks, energy, and now FANG stocks. Mm -hmm. Can can you talk more about this concept and what impact Mm -hmm. rolling bear markets maybe would have on investors and what they should do about it?
0: Sure. You can actually take it back to the beginning of 2018, and uh, we've had these, whether you call them rolling bear markets or micro-bubbles that have popped. I I put together a, a cartoon for Schwab's Impact Conference. Uh, more than a year ago so the November 2017 conference that showed at the time the three major global central bankers um it was Janet Yellen at the time at the Fed of course and then Kuroda and Draghi at uh, Bank of Japan and European Central Bank and they were blowing bubbles using you know the kid wands that we used to use that you dip in what is basically just soap and blow bubbles and in the bubbles I labeled them a number of different asset classes. I had one labeled Bitcoin, I had one labeled Fangs, I had one labeled short vol, one labeled risk parity, positing that although we didn't have some massive systemic bubble, we probably had inflated asset classes by virtue of central bank liquidity that might be seen as micro bubbles that were likely to pop in an environment of receiving liquidity. Well, fast forward to late January, February of 2018, and the short vol bubble popped spectacularly. Ultimately, we got it in in Bitcoin and the other cryptocurrencies. We saw it in the FANG stocks. We saw it in emerging markets. We saw it in uh, small caps. We saw it in oil. So we've had these rolling corrections, bubble bursts, bear markets, whatever you want to call them, that have just kind of hit one asset class at at a time without taking the entire system or the entire market down with it. That's not a bad environment. There are worse ways to experience a bear market in the case of the s&p we got at the recent trough down about nineteen point eight percent it's incredible how common it is we've had six instances in the kind of modern era of the stock market where the market has gone down more than nineteen percent but stopped short of that negative twenty percent which may have to do with sort of technical when you hit a threshold where buying interest steps in but it also tends to be bear markets or close to bear markets that occur when you don't have an economic recession uh, coming. There are sort of non-recession bear markets or non-recession almost bear markets. Whether or not we look back at this one and say, you know, it was indeed the sixth one, or that the down 198 was just sort of the f- opening salvo into a true bear market. I think whether or not we get a recession this year is is key to answering that question.
4: You talked a couple times about financial stability and the Federal Reserve and. You know, maybe I'm still scarred from 2008, but every time that the market seems to fall now or there's some volatility, you start to see headlines around is financial stability improved and how safe are the banks? What is your take on that? Because as you mentioned, at some point we will have a recession, we will have a sharp bear market. But do you think there'll be more a quote-unquote normal recession in bear market as opposed to the sort of systemic crisis we faced 10 years ago? Uh,
0: Yes. Uh, We do think that the next recession is more likely to be garden variety. Now, the only thing that could trip that up is if the, the fractures we're seeing within the corporate debt market, which right now are largely limited to the lowest quality spectrum, even within investment grade, you know, the triple B rated companies. And admittedly, there's more triple B rated companies within the so-called investment grade sphere than has ever been before. And there's a decent percentage of those that are, they're kind of in trouble, if not dire straits. It is still fairly contained in a world of corporate debt, otherwise being easily managed by the ample liquidity that companies have. So Barring some sort of whale coming to the surface that is unforeseen at this point, we think the next recession is likely to be more garden variety because there isn't a big whopper systemic bubble like the housing bubble with massive trillions of dollars of derivatives tied to it weighing down a global financial system that was levered to the hilt. So leverage ratios are way down. Banks are much more well-capitalized, not just for regulatory reasons, but sort of self-preservation reasons. So we don't see the next cycle as as one that looks like the the 07 and 09 cycle. And to your point about how you started the question with, you know, you sort of have seared in your memory that experience. I think there is a lot of muscle memory that has Many investors on guard because it was not only a severe bear market in 07 to 09, but the one prior to that was also a massive bubble burst and severe bear market. So it's no wonder that muscle memory is, is still sort of seared in people's minds. But we do think this next one is more likely, not guaranteed to be, but more likely to be of the milder variety.
3: But yet, given the fact that we are a bit scarred and given the fact we had a poor stock market in Q4, very poor stock market, and given the fact that you've identified a bunch of risks, uh, how do we stay calm in this market?
0: Well, there are some things investors can do. First of all, I think taking an approach around discipline, uh, regardless of the environment, is the first thing to do when starting or at any point in the process. I think if you sit down and you think, okay, am I winging it or do I have a disciplined process here? Is it tied to my risk tolerance and time horizon and everything associated with both of those things? And I'm taking an approach around asset allocation and rebalancing that is also disciplined. That's about as close as you get to a free lunch. Now, you know, we have investors at at Schwab who, although take a strategic long-term approach to investing, also sometimes want to make tactical shifts around that strategic allocation. They want to try to get a little bit of an edge, and that's where some of what we do comes into play with our tactical recommendations. So over the past year, we have gotten decidedly more defensive in what we're recommending tactically for investors. So about a year and a half ago, we moved overall global equity exposure down to neutral, Within that, the only area of emphasis in the last year has been U.S. large caps at the expense of U.S. small caps, but also a a little bit of an underweight to emerging markets. And then more recently, in August of 2018, we took down two of the riskier uh, sector recommendations. So technology and and financials, we moved from um, outperformed to neutral, and we moved up utilities and REITs from underperformed to neutral so really reflecting that need to take a little bit more of a defensive non-cyclical more value-oriented approach within equity portfolios so that's how we've reflected it also reinforcing the benefits of rebalancing especially in a more volatile environment because the beautiful thing about rebalancing is it forces us as investors to do what we know we're supposed to do which is maybe not buy low sell high but kind of you know add low trim high take advantage of volatility pair back where you have outsized gains based on prior gains and and that kind of keeps you on the right side of the market in general so we don't make bombastic all or nothing calls we're not market timers so what I just described is the way we reflect what has been a a more defensive posture over the past year.
4: I'm glad to hear you say that because one of the things that um, a lot of people face, and I'm, I'm sur- sure that you come into contact with this a lot, is the investor that sees the Dow fall 15% in a quarter or whatever, and then just wants to get out and go to cash, and uh, right. as opposed to taking the more nuanced stance. How do you answer that question? Because I'm certain you've gotten it more than a couple times in the last. Month. I, I
0: get it all the time, and my answer is the same all the time, regardless of the environment and regardless of my view on the market. I would answer this if I if I had an unbelievably bullish view on the market or vice versa. And that is that, especially given that the question is often asked with those exact terms, sort of get in or get out. My answer is always neither get in nor get out is an investing strategy. That's gambling on a moment in time. And investing should never be about gambling on a moment in time. It should always be a process over time. And when you think about get in and get out, which infers all or nothing kind of moves, that requires you are not just a perfect market timer, but that you do it right in both directions. You get out at the right time, you get back in at the right time and vice versa. No one can do it. And more often than not, if you attempt that if that's how you're managing your money, you will make grave, grave errors. And at the end of the day, whatever that is, figurative day, you know, the 10-year, 15-years, 20-years, whatever it is, your your time horizon – you're going to end up faring much worse than whatever benchmark it is, in some cases even relatively conservative benchmarks. So it should always be a process over time, never about a moment in time, and never all or nothing.
3: Yeah, I I think that's good advice. I think you've got to figure out what makes sense for you, what your risk tolerance is, what your need is in terms of rate of return, and what the goal is for the money, and and then come up with an investment strategy that makes sense. But it's hard to do emotionally sometimes because emotionally it's it's like, I'm I'm retired, I, I can't lose this money.
0: Well, that I'm glad you just said that, because that perfectly ties to what you said just prior to that, which is that every investor is different in terms of their risk tolerance and time horizon. Um, And there are so many factors that make each individual different. And it's not just about age and time horizon. Too often investors say, okay, I'm young, I have a long time horizon, therefore I can take a more aggressive approach. Well, if you're going to panic at the first 10% drop in your portfolio and sell everything, I don't care how young you are, you are not a risk-tolerant investor. So what, I also, what also drives me crazy, aside from the question I often get, are you telling investors to get in or get out, which we already talked about, is, well, what are you recommending to clients? What's your asset allocation recommendation? As if one asset allocation recommendation is right for every investor. And I it drives me crazy how often I hear people, pundits, who get that question, who actually answer it, and they'll say, I don't know, 60, 30, 10, I'm being very generic, but as right. if that's right for everybody. If you are you know, 25 years old and you just inherited $10 million and you go bungee jumping on the weekend, you don't need the money, you're not going to obsess over it, you don't need to earn income on it, versus a 75-year-old who needs to keep everything they made and needs to earn income on that. Well, I could have a very singular high-conviction view of what I think the market is going to do, but what I would tell those two investors are entirely different things. Too often we hear people answer that question.
3: Yeah, and it's even to the point, like, you could have two 80-year-olds. One needs every penny for their own expenses. The other one doesn't need a penny at all. It's for their their grandkids. So, of course, that's going to be a different investment philosophy.
0: Clearly. I met the late great Sir John Templeton when he was in his 90s, and we had an interesting conversation about how aggressive an investor he has always been. Well, one, he could afford to take the risk from a financial perspective, Vicky think he was a billionaire, and he understood the risks. he had tolerance for them. So it's another example of age not necessarily being the, the single determinant of whether you're a risk-tolerant or a risk-averse investor.
3: Lizanne, uh, you've given us so much good information. What did we forget to ask you?
0: Well, the one thing I would say that's been interesting throughout this bull market is that up until the beginning of 2018, Sentiment was so subdued. There was so much skepticism about this bull market and, you know, sort of latent fear that was part of that muscle memory. And it was like somebody just flipped a switch in January of 2018. And optimism just went absolutely through the roof. And that was a big warning sign for me personally, because I've been a sentiment watcher for a long time. And I had one of those, hmm, uh oh moments in January, which caused us to really express our concerns about the market a bit more forcefully than we had been doing you had the inevitable correction that came shortly in the aftermath of that and then sentiment got more subdued but then in august and september it ramped again and that same kind of little bell going off Hmm. boy this is probably not going to end well and then of course the market clocks those optimistic investors with what happened in october november and december so I think another thing that will be key to watch in the near term is how quickly sentiment swings. I think sentiment is an always an important factor to watch. If you could get that right, you almost don't need all the other fundamental things. But I think because of how volatile markets have been, my guess is sentiment's going to swing a little bit more wildly than it would in a normal market environment.
3: Lizanne, great information. Lizanne Saunders, Senior Vice President, Chief Investment Strategist uh, with Charles Schwab & Company. Thank you so much for joining us today.
0: My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Don't
1: forget to share today's Your Money, Your Wealth podcast across LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and email for anyone that you think would benefit from Ann Saunders' insight. Find a link to her 2019 market outlook in the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com along with Brian Perry's free comprehensive video guide on the history of bear markets, recession indicators, and bear market investing strategies. If there's someone you'd like to hear on Your Money, Your Wealth, or if you have a money question, visit the all new Your Money, Your and click Ask Joe and Al on air to send in your question. And now you have the option to leave the fellas a voicemail right there through the website. And you can still do it the old fashioned way as well. You can email info at purefinancial.com just like these folks did.
2: This is a long distance email. Apparently. This is a postcard. <laughs> <laughs> It's uh, Michael uh, from Malaysia. Malaysia. Have you been to Malaysia? <clears throat> I don't even know where Malaysia is.
1: <laughs> Alan, have you been to Malaysia?
2: No, but my son has. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, good day. Well, that must be near
3: Australia. Well, not exactly. Okay. But I mean, you're in the same general what? longitude. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Or latitude. No,
2: latitude is straight. Yeah. Longitude is up and down. Got it. Because it's right. well above Australia. All right. Uh, good day, Joe and Al. Big fan here from Malaysia. I've uh, been listening to you since a year ago. Uh, here's my question. Me and my wife, both 41, are totally debt-free, house and everything. Oh, congratulations, Michael. Uh, we have two girls, ages of 13 and 10. Currently, we're saving around 55% of our after-tax income. there, Big Al. That's pretty good. And we plan to retire at age 55, so uh, 14 years. Do you think we should slow down on our savings and have more fun? Secondly, what is your recommendations on the saving ratio between retirement and the Kids College Fund? Best wishes to YMYW for 2019. Thanks.
3: Wow, that's very nice.
2: Michael from Malaysia, saving 55% of his income, wanting to know, should he keep saving or have more fun? Michael, have more fun. What the hell are you doing saving 55% of your income? I would say it this way. I, I think
3: if you want to retire, I mean, just in general, if you want to retire in your 60s, we would say you probably ought to be saving at least 15% of your income, maybe 20 but say fifteen or twenty, and I know for a lot of people that's very hard to even get to that level. But now you want to retire at fifty-five, so that's earlier. So you might be a slightly higher percentage, but fifty-five percent strikes me as pretty high. That would be a percentage if you wanted to be part of the, uh, the fire financial, movement, fi- financial independence, retire early, and you're in about your age currently. So yeah, I would agree with you, Joe. Uh, so Michael, have some more fun. Yeah.
2: Well, I guess we got to know Michael's salary. Sure. If he makes ten thousand dollars a year, fifty-five percent is probably right on. We also need to know how much he's
3: already saved. If if he's saving, if he saved nothing to right. this point, it's a different answer.
2: And how much is he spending? Sure.
3: Well, yeah. I mean, there's some basic <laughs> questions. what other
2: that. <laughs> fixed income sources <laughs> do you have? On
3: the surface, <laughs> saving fifty-five percent of your income is uh, is above and beyond what you need to do in general.
2: Yes, you like that answer. Yeah, allegedly. Um, (laughs) Secondly, okay. Well, what's the savings ratio? What? What say you on this, Al? Uh, Savings ratio between uh, retirement and college funds. Well,
3: I guess I would. I would. Are you going to get fired up again? About fired up again? About (laughs) that was a few few years ago. Yeah. No, I'm I'm over that. (laughs) My college fund experience. Anyway, so I would say it this way. If if you're saving fifteen to twenty percent of your income for your own retirement, then that's that's that I, I would want you to do that first and then you could go back and figure out what you really need to save for college. It's not a ratio, it's more what's the need, right? And let's just say that's ten percent, just to throw out a number. And so you still have extra. Have fun with that. Or save a little bit more. I I, I would kind of do you know kind of think about it that way.
2: Here's what I would do, Michael, is to look at all right. You have two kids, thirteen and ten. Um, one child is going to go to school in five years, four or five years, right? Depending on when they graduate. I graduated at seventeen. Al graduated probably at nineteen. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, the ten year old, right? So yeah. let's say you have five and seven years, or five and eight years for both of those kids, right? Right. And then so you look at, well, how much do you want to fund? Do you want to fund a state school? What's the school cost in Malaysia? I have no idea. Uh, Do you want to come to wherever? and kind of figure out exactly what that cost is and work backwards. Yeah, exactly. It's you know, Let's say it's $10,000 a year hypothetically. Sure. So you have $40,000 that you need to save for each kid. It's a little bit more complex because there's inflation involved. Sure. But you get the gist, is that, well, 40000 for each kid, now you kind of work that backwards. You have eight years for one child to get to that $40,000. You have five years for the other child to get to that $40,000. Then you set up a savings program on a monthly basis to save into you know, whatever plan that you choose to get to that goal.
3: Yeah, I, I agreed with that. And so, so in other words, you figure out what the need is, and then you can sort of calculate the percentage. You don't start with the percentage, you got to figure out what the need right. is. Right, it's and, not and a work, ratio work backwards.
2: of half and half, right. you know. Right. It, but if, if 100% of your savings is going to have to go to that college fund, then I think then that's when you revert back to a ratio.
3: Yeah, well, I think in that case, I want you to start with yourself. Yes, fifteen percent to yourself before before you do the college. Hundred percent agreement there. Yeah,
2: because where we find is that all of a sudden it's like, well, you know what? I'm forty one. I'm already saving fifty five percent. I got a couple of kids. You know, I'm gonna stop saving for retirement. I'm gonna funnel all of my free cash flow into, let's say, a five twenty nine plan or a college savings plan, and then I'll revert back to my. Retirement savings, right? No, I mean you don't do it that way. You have to take care of yourself first. Your kids can get loans, where you can't get a loan for your retirement,
3: right? And I can tell you, at age sixty-eight or seventy-two, you probably don't want to call up your kids and say, "Remember, I funded that college. So yeah, now it's time
2: for you to send me a few yeah, bucks." Yeah, I'm broke. <laughs> I was saving fifty five percent of my life savings until I called in to your money or wealth, and they told me to go have more fun. And now I'm an alcoholic, and you kids are <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay, that's sad.
3: Well, that was a little
1: bit. That was sad. <laughs> <laughs> okay, just got his retirement mapped out. Yes, no, Michael, right, keep
2: saving fifty five percent. Thank you for the email. All right, that's a good one. All right, Dennis. Uh, Dennis is uh, he he uh, buzzed in here from San Diego. Okay. <clears throat> I know you said that it's best to wait as long as possible to collect Social Security, and I believe that to be a sound investment decision. However, is it not a lifestyle decision as well, since you are most likely to spend money in your 60s, slash the go-go years, right, as opposed to your 70s, the slow-go years, or your 80s, the no-go years? Dennis, what other podcasts are you listening to? <laughs> that is the question I have. Yes, we have a hunch. Uh, there's several people that use those little go-go, slow-go, no-go years. We've and never, this, we, this podcast we've, is not one of them. We've never actually said that. No, until now. That has never come time. out of my mouth until now. And I, You feel kind of... I, yeah, I feel a little bad. embarrassed.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame you. And I still haven't said it, and I won't. <laughs>
2: So, there. So, oh, because Al, you're actually in your go-go years <laughs> Barely <laughs> Just just barely
3: got over the top of that Let's not get too carried away here <laughs> oh, Boy, What are you in? I'm still what, trying what, what, what is to this? figure He's out in the
2: my uh, uh, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just trying to figure out my years <laughs> There is no description for your generation uh, All right, Dennis, here's the answer I don't. um, <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm still kind of caught up Press in this whole
3: go-go Go Go. No, go Go.
2: No, no but all right. So, what he's saying is this it's like, okay, we're. Sh- I understand. Push out Social Security to age seventy. That's what a lot of financial advisors are saying now because yeah. of longevity. But well, I don't, I don't need it so much then. Yeah, yeah. I want the cash I flow in my sixties. I want to go go. <laughs> yes, let's go <go-go> go with this. <laughs> I money. did say now the first one. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I haven't said all three together sense, <laughs> as you did. <laughs> so, oh, uh, I don't know, Dennis. You got to take a look at a, a few different things here. Is that y- you? There's this instant gratification always when it comes to money. It's like we kind of forget our future self, sure. right? So we want to spend a little, a little bit more today, save a little bit less, and that's why we're kind of in this retirement, um, quote unquote, crisis, if you will. Uh, so yeah, if you want to go go and spend your social security and take a twenty five percent permanent haircut, because if you take it at sixty two versus full retirement age, you receive a significant reduction in benefit for the rest of your life. It's permanent, right? So, you could say, well, what's the break even then? If you have shorter life expectancy in your no go years, right? If you're dead, well, then yeah, take it as soon as you can get it. If you need the money, take it as soon as you can get it. But if you don't necessarily need the money, then that's where more analysis has to come into play.
3: Yeah, I I agree with that. I, I think a couple of things. I think you got to look at Social Security more as almost a, an insurance policy of, for right. long life.
2: It's just longevity insurance. Right? It's
3: longevity insurance. So so it's it's a little bit different than I think a lot of people think about it. Uh, and the the other thing is, if you if you've got other resources, go ahead and spend your money in the go go years. Right. Right. And and then but still defrees. and then you have a guaranteed fixed income right. source later on in your def- later
2: later in life yeah that's yeah <laughs> I'm not gonna say it and, then, and what wait what years I'm not gonna go there slow <laughs> we already did it It's done okay. <laughs> I just want to hear you say it one
1: more time. <laughs> Watch Joe and Big Al's video responses to the emails you just heard in the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. To get your money questions answered by the fellas in video and audio format, click Ask Joe and Al on air at yourmoneyyourwealth.com to send your question either as a voice message or as an email. Now, we've heard a lot today about what to expect in 2019 and how things went in 2018. Let's see how the prognosticators did last year.
3: So our buddy Larry Sweat, So he he writes different columns, and he each year he takes a look at the can't miss predictions for that year, and then and then after the year goes by he come, he's, he checks to see how they did. Okay. And usually what happens is um, the predictions are, are pretty far off. But let's see what happened this year because he's got like seven of them, and uh, the first one, Joe, the first sure thing was that U.S. economy would grow faster with GDP growth forecasted at 2.5% for 2018 and then we take a look uh, it actually grew 4.2% through April or April through June and uh, based upon third quarter and predictions for fourth quarter we were the forecast is about 2.8%. So it actually did beat the 2.5 so that's a, that's a plus. That's in the plus side.
2: Yeah, GDP looks pretty good as well for 2019 is what some of the forecasts right. uh, that I've seen as well. Right. Second sure thing was that uh, the the Tax Cuts and
3: Jobs Act of 2017, along with expectations for stronger economic growth and tighter labor markets, the Federal Reserve would raise interest rates in 2018. And yes, they did. So that's a... I mean, that's, that's kind true. of a layup. That is a layup, right? You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. The third sure thing was tightening labor markets, stable, broader, global uh, growth, and you, know, you like this word, a nadir in commodity prices.
2: I have no idea what you just said. <laughs> the opposite here, of the apex. Were you, were you speaking English?
3: Yeah. <laughs> I had to look it up. See, Andy already knew it. She's the smartest one on the show. <laughs> anyway, that that means like when it hits a bottom, oh. the nader. Thank you, the nader. <laughs> so the nader in community and commodity prices would cause inflation to rise in cyclical lows. And I won't go into all the things that happened, but basically, this is a push. It was, yeah, you know, it didn't really happen, but it didn't really not happen. So. Uh, here's the fourth thing though that uh, with the help of the tax cuts the US economy would pick up steam and corporate earnings would have a big boost which um,
2: is true that's what we saw so that's correct I think that was already priced in yeah way before the, uh, the the year
3: right and that's why it's hard to, to make it to you to make investment decisions based upon
2: <laughs> so it was priced in la- in 2016. Right, because the anticipation of mm-hmm. the in t- the, 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 the bill gets. was signed yeah. in December of 17. Right, and it's like, oh, it's going. Th- I remember, t- I mean, it was like yesterday, you and I talking. Well, we got this many votes in the House and this <laughs> many votes in the Senate. looks like it's going to go through. Right. right, and then you see the stock market just start you know, yeah. pushing um, right. forward. And so it's like, all right, well, here, let me predict it in 2019, the past bill. You know, I could be a predictor, too. You flip a coin. Yeah, true. And
3: half the time, you're right. Yes. Fifth sure thing uh, follows the fourth with a strengthening U.S. economy and the new tax cuts encouraging U.S. multi-internationals to repatriate earnings. The U.S. dollar would strengthen.
2: And, in fact, it did. How's that How's that going? Well, I haven't really heard a lot about the... All the money coming back. Yeah, the DXY, the dollar
3: index, w- closed at uh, 92.1 at the beginning of the year, and at least at the end of September, it was 95.3. So yeah, but the market 3.5. doesn't like
2: a strong dollar. It doesn't like a weak
3: dollar. Yeah, well, there's we're not economists, so I'm not going to explain... <laughs> Why either? So, I, I mean, other than when you have, like, when there's a weak dollar, then it's better for exports or imports. What do you do? <laughs> I'll, I'll hedge my bet. <laughs> you like that? The, uh, moving on. <laughs> that means our cost of goods are cheaper for global companies. It just shows you I can't think and speak at the same, same time. Yes, I know. Yeah, it's, right. and, it's, it's tough. Chew gum and walk. The sixth sure thing is the stock market volatility would rise this year. yeah. Well, I think we all agree that. Yeah,
2: happened. it was because it's it's been pretty,
3: yeah, calm, pretty, pretty tame over the last it, couple it of years. Really picked up, so that's the, well, that's that's correct. And the seventh sure thing. This is the last one, is that U.S. stock valuations uh, high? Uh, the price uh, the place to be is in defensive funds such as uh, the iShares MSCI USA Quality Factor ETF.
2: No, we are not recommending <laughs> any. Uh, <laughs> we are ETFs on this program.
3: I can hardly pronounce it. Anyway, so those those did not do any better or worse. So what
2: uh, I guess what you're saying is that defense-type companies or stocks would outperform, and what Larry was doing is looking, looking at, it at as at the proxy dis- to say, well, here's a basket of all defense stocks. That's and they exactly have, right. And they didn't over o- outperform. That's right. So or underperform. Yeah. So that was a push? It was a push. So, at so it, why would defense stocks I mean, th- why were they predicting that? Because they thought we were going to go to w- war? Uh, it doesn't say here. So Steel I no companies because no we, we may or may not build a wall. Could be. Right. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway. So
3: anyway, the conclusion here is that uh, five things were correct, that two were a push, and none were wrong, which is the first year since 2010 when Larry Sweater started doing this that there were actually more right than wrong.
2: All right. Uh, that's it for us. We'll see you guys next week. Show's got your money.
1: Special thanks to Liz Ann Saunders, Chief Investment Strategist for Charles Schwab & Company and the apex of this edition of Your Money, Your Wealth. Visit schwab.com to learn more. Listen and subscribe to this podcast for free and on demand at yourmoneyyourwealth.com or subscribe on all the various podcast apps. You'll find them in the show notes for today's episode. And if you love the show, we'll love you forever if you share it with everyone you know. Email your money questions to info at purefinancial.com or call 888-999. We'll be joined next week by Everyday Millionaire's author, Chris Hogan, on Your Money, Your Wealth, presented by Pure Financial Advisors. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision and we are now officially at the nader of today's show see you next week